0: To this episode of the Gorman Limit, I am the host of the show. My name is Neil Gorman. You can see why the show is named what it is because you're smart enough to see that, right? You see the connection. I'm Neil Gorman. The name of the podcast, the Gorman Limit. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I don't. I haven't said this in a while, so I'll say it now. The I, part of the reason that I call this show the Gorman Limit, emphasis on the word limit is because I'm trying to do something with it. I'm trying to take the limit of what it is that I know and what I can do with my knowledge and extend it. Probably just a little bit, not a whole lot, but just a little bit, right? And one of the ways that I think that I can do that, one of the ways that I think I can go about extending the limit of what I know, pushing the limit of what I know, extending what I can do with the knowledge that I may have is talk about it, right? There's something I think about saying something out loud to another person, or in this case, in the case of this podcast, to a group of people who will hear it. It, it when you're, I mean, I, I have, if you're like me, and I, don't, I really don't know if any of you are, but if you are like me, you probably have all sorts of different things in your head, ideas, thoughts, concepts, and uh, sometimes you might even think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll take some of these and I'll, I'll write an article or a book or a presentation, or I'll try to tell somebody about how they make sense to me. And then you, you know, you sit down at a keyboard or you start to talk, and one of the things that becomes apparent is that even though it makes a lot of sense to you in your head trying to take it and have it make sense outside of your head, rendering your ideas into symbolic speech, you know, the things that you say, or into writing is hard. It's a a really hard thing to do. It's not easy. You know, there's sometimes where I guess it can be easy, right? If you're talking about something that's simplistic, it's probably pretty easy to do it. But if you're talking about something important, if you're talking about something that matters, you're talking about something that is complex or some combination of all those things, it's actually pretty hard to do. It's actually pretty hard to take the constellation of thoughts and experiences and associations and ideas and all that stuff and put it together in a way that makes sense. And that's what I'm trying to do on the podcast. I'm trying to take my experiences, my ideas, the way that I think about things and stuff and talk about it and then and after I talk about it, take it and put it out into the world in a format that other people, i.e. you, can listen to. And my my genuine hope here is that when you listen to this, it will be interesting to you or useful to you or both interesting and useful to you. I also hope that, you know, people will engage with it, that they will... Listen to this and they'll start talking back to me. They'll send me emails that go to my website, thegormanlimit.com. Take a look at what's there. And uh, yeah, I, I guess just use it or find it interesting. That would be great. Uh, I think that'd be good. So that's part of the reason why I named the podcast The Gorman Limit. Uh, emphasis on the word limit. I didn't just name it The Gorman. I named it The Gorman Limit. And uh, somebody asked me about that recently. That's why I'm talking about it now. Why Why The Limit, they asked And that's part of the reason why I called it the Gorman Limit. There's another reason that I'll talk about in an episode at some point in the future, but it's a uh, a distant kind of secondary reason. The main reason is the reason that I just told you. That's the reason behind the title. So what am I going to be talking about on the podcast today? So glad that you asked. On the podcast today, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the importance of really listening. If you do clinical work, if you do psychotherapeutic work, if you do mental health work, the importance of really listening to people, it's an important thing. I have a lot to say about that, or maybe I don't have a lot. I have a—I have a decent amount of things that I could say about that, and I will attempt to say them. And then after I do that for a little bit, I'm going to switch, and I'm going to talk about a different concept, a concept called full speech versus empty speech, which is a concept that comes from the work of the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who is absolutely the biggest influence on all the work that I do. So that's what we're going to do today. Listening, full speech versus empty speech. Those are our things. Get ready for that. We'll play some music when we come back. We'll start to talk about listening. And we are back. So what I want to do to start off this segment of the podcast is tell you a story. It's a pretty simple story. There's not a whole lot of complicated elements to it, but I do need to set it up. Uh, to set it up, I need to say that I've worked in mental health for a long time. I've done quite a few things. I've worked in residential treatment centers. I've worked in schools, and I have been in a private practice doing my own thing for quite some time too i would say that i've rebooted or reinvented maybe my career or i've you know my maybe it's safe to say that i was going in a certain direction and then i changed course in a really significant way probably like four times throughout my career and the story that i'm about to tell you is a story that kind of takes place at the beginning of uh The end of stage two of my career and what I think of as the beginning of stage three. So stage one was working in residential treatment centers. A lot of the stories that I've told you in previous episodes of the podcast come from that job, come from that phase of my life when I was working in residential settings and I'll probably tell more stories about that phase of my career in future episodes of the podcast as well. So I went and I did that for a while and then I went into... Working in therapeutic day schools, mainly. That's that's another part of my trajectory, another chapter, I guess, in the story that's being written that is my life. And uh, eventually i I went from being a working in schools to working as part of a group practice. And that transition from going from working in schools to working in a group practice, that's around the time that this story that I'm going to tell you takes place. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of details about this, but one of the reasons that I made the shift from working in schools to working kind of like as a private practitioner in a group practice is because I lost my job working in schools. I didn't get fired or anything like that. I I didn't do anything, you know, really awful or atrocious or whatever. I, I was working someplace and there was a budget... And it got to the point where the place I was working for couldn't keep all of the people who were working there working there and still make their budget work. And so a lot of people got laid off. I was one of the people who got laid off. I'll probably talk more about this uh, story, this part, this getting, losing your job on a future episode of The Gorman Limit because maybe that's an interesting thing. There's a, there's a lot to that story that might be interesting, but that's for a different day. So I lost that job. And when I lost that job, it was at the end of a school year, I did a major reboot in my life. One of the things that I did is I decided that I was going to start a doctoral program, and I, so I did that. The other thing that I decided I was going to do is something that I'd been thinking about doing for a really, really long time, which was going to work only as a therapist, you know, just, just working with patients who voluntarily came to me looking for some thing, Right, I wanted to to make that shift, so I I did. I made did both those those things. I got into a doctoral program, started that, and I also uh, started. I I found a group practice that was attempting to bring on new clinicians, and I joined that group practice. Uh, now, some people might not be aware of this, so I'm going to say a little bit about it. When you join a group practice, there's there's all sorts of different group practices, but um, what you do is it, it's a group of people who get together and they kind of like pool their resources. Uh, And they share space, office space and and other computers, printers, paper, stuff like that, I guess. Um, But everybody who works at the group practice is generally has a a level of autonomy of of independence. And the group practice that I joined, you know, allowed for a great deal of autonomy and independence. And then, you know, we all sort of like worked together in certain ways, but we also worked on our own. And so I, I was I was doing that. And when I made this shift, you know, I started to hustle a lot. I, I needed to build up my patient base. I didn't have any patients because I was coming from a place, the school system, where I was working with kids who had to go to school, right? Like, so all of the, the people who I was working with were people who more or less had to work with me. And I left that and I went into a work in a situation where I had to convince people to work with me or they, they had to want to work with me. And so I, I had to do a lot of different things. I had to go places and, you know, do the the thing that people call networking, talk to people, meet people, um, just go to events, try to, to do different things to make sure that people knew I was out there. I had to put a, a profile up on this website called Psychology Today, which is something that people will sometimes use to find therapists. I, I did a lot of stuff. And, you know, it was a slow build. I, as it, as my practice was building, it didn't build as quickly as I wanted it to, which was hard because, you know, uh, I went from working in a school where every two weeks I got paid and I knew what I was going to get paid every two weeks to working where, in, in a setting where if I wasn't seeing people, I wasn't getting paid. And so I, I really wanted to, to see people because I really wanted to get paid because I needed some money. That was the situation that I was in at that point. Uh, so that's where I'm at. And because I'm in that situation, you know, people people are coming to me. I am getting patients, not as much as I want in the beginning, but I am getting some. And when they come in, I, you know, I'll, I'll ask them a question. One of the questions I ask people is, you know, what's bringing you in? Why here? Why now? Those sorts of things. And people answer those questions in different ways. And I would listen. And what I was doing is I was listening for something. I was listening for an opportunity to talk. I was listening for an opportunity to interject some sort of like knowledge or wisdom or something like that right? that that I had. I wanted to wait for somebody to say something so that I could say something that would make them think that I was really smart, that I was really insightful, that I really knew what I was doing. That's what I was going for. I was listening for those moments. And then I would say things and stuff when an opportunity seemed to present itself to me. And uh, looking back at this, I think I was making a huge mistake. I really do. I think I was making a huge, huge mistake. And I say that for two different reasons. One, when you're listening for an opportunity to, to show off, which is what I think I was doing, you know, it, it it really influences how much you hear. You're not really fully listening to the person who's talking to you you're listening to them, you're tuned into them to a degree, but you're also tuned into your own um, motive. You're preparing what you're going to say, you know, so your, your attention is split in these instances. And uh, I mean, that's probably always the case when you're, you're talking with people to some degree. But what I want to make clear is when I was doing this, I, I was paying a lot of attention to preparing what I was going to say. I was trying to construct really good, solid, impressive, verbal interventions, things that I would say to people, you know, so I wasn't listening to them as closely as I could. That's one of the reasons it was a mistake. The second reason that I think it was a mistake is that, you know, well, psychotherapy or, or psychoanalysis, which is what, what I do, has oftentimes been called the talking cure. It is actually also very much a listening cure. And there are some people who would go so far as to say, that it's even more of a listening cure than it is a talking cure. And at this point in my life, I think that's true. I think that any kind of therapeutic intervention that me or you or anybody else who's a mental health person ever constructs should probably be based on really good listening. If it isn't based on that, I don't think it's going to be as good as it could be if it were based on really good listening. So yeah, that, that, that's a thing. I would listen, I would wait for my turn to talk, and then I would attempt to say something impressive. And I think that I would talk too soon. I think that I would talk too much when I was doing these things. So uh, let me maybe describe that a little bit better. I would be in situations where, you know, was, somebody had come into my office, they've sat down, I've sat down. They're telling me about something going on in their life and you know they'd be talking they'd be talking occasionally I would attempt to razzle dazzle them by saying something intelligent Um, but there'd be a moment where maybe they would get stuck I'll say they were talking 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 describing something and then they'd stop and when they stopped I would wait for a couple of seconds sometimes sometimes I wouldn't sometimes I would just jump in but sometimes I would wait for a little bit but then The silence would start to, you know, be this thing that I was really feeling in a pretty significant way. And I'd start to be like, oh, this is bad. The silence isn't good. This is bad silence. And I would say something, and I wasn't really saying anything important. I was just saying something to try to get the silence to come to an end. You know, I just wanted the silence to stop. So, or I wanted to prompt the person to pick up and start talking again. That's what I was trying to do. And. Yeah, a lot of times that worked. I'd say something and then, then they, they'd respond to what I say uh, or what I'd said. And th- that was, I guess, oh, okay. But it it's not how I practice today. Today, I'm, I, I think I'm a lot better at just sitting. And if somebody gets to a point where they, they run out of things to say, I don't rescue, and silence ensues, I don't rescue them or me from the silence by saying something unless I have something that I think I should be saying. And I, I wait. I do a lot more waiting. I hold before I talk way more than I, I did at the beginning of this phase of my career, which is what I'm telling you about. Um, and this way that I do it now, let me tell you, it's way better. Or at least I think it's way better. Because you, you get really surprised. If you just wait, just wait. And and don't rescue people from the silence. Don't rescue yourself from the silence. If you're able to do that, I can tell you that people will eventually produce something and what they produce is going to probably be better than what they would produce if you rescued them from the silence. I I believe this. I believe this very, very strongly. And uh, that's where the story comes in. Here's here's the story. Like I said in the beginning of this segment, it's a very simplistic story you know i was i was doing what i just described i was meeting with patients they'd talk eventually they'd get quiet and then i'd fill the silence i'd ask them a question i'd i'd reassure them i'd offer them something that i thought might be validating something along those lines and then one day i uh i caught a, i got sick with like a cold or something like that, that you know i had a a cough blah 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 i took a couple of days off of work so that i wouldn't infect other people because that's the responsible thing to do then eventually i went back to work but when i went back to work and i I saw a doctor the doctor's like yeah you're not contagious you're fine but uh one of the things that happened as a result of me being sick was that i i my voice i lost it i i couldn't i could talk very 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 little um my i would start to talk and my voice would just like give out on me and so when i went back to work I, you know, tried to explain that to people at the beginning of the sessions that my my I had been sick and my I'd lost my voice and I'm slowly getting it back. So I apologize. I may be a little bit more quiet than normal, uh, and I don't want you to think that I'm being rude. Really. So I'm just I'm just sort of telling you that everybody's like, okay, cool, cool, yeah, I can hear it in your voice. It sounds kind of scratchy. It sounds kind of hoarse. We no problem. So I would sit and people would talk and then one of those silences would happen one of those moments where they the patient had been saying things had been telling me about different elements of what was happening to them in their lives and they'd hit up a spot where they didn't they they couldn't go on they'd stop and silence would ensue and it would go on and it would go on and i'd feel that moment where i would normally like jump in where i would normally say something Uh, but I was recovering from laryngitis. And so like, I was like, Oh, do I really want to do I only had so much voice each day. And so I didn't want to lose it. So I was really being extremely circumspect in how I used my voice and I would wait longer. And here's the thing. If I just waited a little bit longer, people did start to say things and it wasn't what I expected them to say. They would go off in a new direction. They would make a connection. They would have an insight all on their own, sans me trying to interject some sort of impressive verbal thing that I had produced, right? They didn't need that. They didn't need me to say something. They didn't need me to talk. Silence isn't a bad thing. A lot of times people think it's a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing. A lot of times when people... In psychotherapeutic or psychoanalytic sessions, when they get quiet, the, the, the silence might be uncomfortable for the patient or for the clinician or for both. It isn't always uncomfortable. Sometimes it's just that the patient is thinking. Sometimes they're just figuring something out. Sometimes they just need to take a couple of beats and let the tumblers fall into place, and then they'll say something which is really groovy. It's really cool. And you can mess that up if you interrupt what's happening in that silence by talking too soon you know don't don't do that don't talk too soon if you can avoid it just hold off a little bit longer wait wait for it something will happen now it didn't always happen that way sometimes people would be quiet for a long time and i wouldn't jump in and they didn't then say something that was really great but they would go off in a different direction they'd go off in a new direction And that's significant too because a lot of times when people come into a session, they start the session off by talking about things that actually are not that impactful or or, that are just inconsequential, right? They're just sort of warming up, I guess you might say. They're saying things, they're saying stuff, but it's not stuff that matters a whole lot. And then when they run out of that sort of stuff, they get quiet and they don't have any more like boring, mundane, unimportant things to talk about. So they have to then choose something else to talk about and usually that thing is more interesting more important than the mundane stuff that they started talking about when they first came in and you you get to that by not interrupting the silence not jumping in when things get silenced. and even if you feel weird or awkward or uncomfortable still just give it a bit give it a bit before you jump in that's kind of the point i'm trying to make here but let me try to tie this in with listening too um when things get quiet you know, one of the things you can do is you can listen to the silence, which sounds weird, right? But I mean this, you can listen to the silence. Not all silence is the same. It's not. There's some silence, which is I'm thinking silence. If you listen to silence for a while, you will start to recognize that kind of silence. I don't think a lot of people are able to, but that that's a silence that exists. There's another silence, which is I'm about to start talking about something that I didn't expect to start. That I was going to talk about, and I just need a moment to prepare myself. That's a different kind of silence. And then there's the the kind of silence which is I'm being silent at you. I'm I'm not saying things deliberately to try to demand that you say something. It's giving somebody the silent treatment. That has a totally different feel. A totally different contour to it. It sounds different. It feels different. It is different than the other forms of silence that I just described. So listening to silence is an important thing. Um, it's a huge part of listening, right? And I hope that the story that I told illustrates this. I didn't learn this on purpose. I learned this on accident. I learned this by getting sick and losing my voice and then sitting in sessions. And because I didn't have much of a voice, not saying things, which meant that I I was listening And I started to listen to the silence and I started to listen to my patients better. And the thing that I learned through this is that if I just shut up and listen, that's it, shut up and listen, I actually end up doing better work than if I am really trying to be an impressive person and and say things that are... You know, my own version of this this is this is my idea. Here's my cool thing that I'm going to tell. If I jump in with those things, that's not as good. If I try to rescue people from what they're talking about, that that's also not good. Just holding and waiting with the silence and listening, listening, listening. This is something which is really important. So what I want to talk about on this next segment of the podcast is something that I did as part of my doctoral studies. I had to write a dissertation and I did write a dissertation. The dissertation that I wrote was an attempt to study how clinicians, how therapists listened to their patients. And, you know, I wanted to title it, shut up and listen. And, And I actually put that, I wrote that title down on the title page And I submitted what was one of the final drafts of my dissertation to my dissertation committee. When you write a dissertation, you have a committee of people and you present your dissertation to them and then they give you feedback on it. And uh, I remember one of the members saw my title and they were like, oh, that's a cute title. And I said, yeah, I, I like it. I think it's really good. I think it's cool. And this person said, oh, I don't think you understand. When I say it's a cute title... I mean it's not a kind of title you can actually use. It's not serious enough. It's not you know academic enough. And you know, I don't know. I could have maybe I could have pushed back on that, but I didn't. I just was like, okay, fine, because I wanted to be done with my program at that. I wanted I didn't want to keep going. I didn't want to drag anything out. So it does it's like that's a small thing. I'll I'll cave on that. Sure. What I'll well, give it some fancy academic title. And I did and I don't even remember what that title is. But in my head, I always think of my dissertation as being titled, Shut Up and Listen. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about the, the dissertation itself and uh, something that happened when I was doing it. So I wanted to study how therapists, how clinicians go about listening to their patients. And I had a group of 12 people and I would meet with them and I would do a semi-structured interview with them where I'd ask them questions. And one of the questions that I, I asked is, how do you go about listening to your patients? And I got a lot of really interesting answers to that. But something that was a really consistent thing that people said in response to that question was, oh, that's a really interesting question. You know, I've, I don't think I've ever really thought about it, which is weird, right? It, it is and it isn't. You've probably never been asked, how do you listen to people? You've probably never asked somebody, how do you listen to people? It's just something that you do all the time. You, you just, you listen and you don't think about it. Uh, one of the people who I was interviewing, I remember this kind of clearly, they said, you know, it's kind of like walking. I-, I walk all the time. It's just something that I do. I do it without thinking about it. And if somebody were to ask me how I go about walking, I, I, wouldn't, know how to, I wouldn't know how to tell them that. I would just tell them like, I, I just do it. And when you ask me, how do I listen? It's kind of the same thing. I, I want to say like, I don't know. I just sort of do it. And I think that's how most people think about listening. But if we think about it, right, we don't always listen in the same way. If you are at a social function uh, and you're sort of like doing the mingling thing, talking with people while you're, I don't know, eating food and drinking adult beverages, you listen in a certain way. Now, if you're in a a session with a patient, you're going to listen in a different way, I hope. If you are um, talking to somebody about something serious, you're probably listening to them differently than if you're talking to them about, like, I don't know, hockey or baseball or something like that. We, we don't listen to this. We have different modes of listening. Some listening is more intense, more purposeful, uh, it, it's more active, it's, it's a thing that requires more concentration, and other listening is more lightweight, simple, not much to it. Uh, we listen in different ways. And that's one of the things I wanted to try to figure out. How do therapists listen to their patients? So in addition to doing the interview, I did an interview at the beginning, I did an interview in the middle, and an interview at the end. And we I did this research for months, basically. And the other thing that I was doing is I was having the people who were my research participants, the subjects of my study, the therapists who had volunteered to do this, they were uh, every week writing a response to three questions. The three questions were, reflect on a time when you listened well and describe to me what happened in that moment. The second question was reflect on a time when you did not listen well and describe to me what happened in that moment. And the third question was, is there anything else that you're thinking about listening this week? And I had people do that every single week. And a really interesting thing happened here. So in the, you know, people, they, they did it. They, they wrote their answers. Their answers could be as long or as short as they wanted them to be. And, uh, After people had done this for a number of weeks, I started to notice something happening to a number of people. They started to say in response to that third question, is there anything else that you want to say that you're thinking about listening? They started to say, you know, every week doing this exercise of sitting down and reflecting on how I listened, thinking about a time I did it good, thinking about a time I did it not so good. It's been really good for me. It's been really helpful because I'm starting to think more about how I listen. And I'm starting to notice how I listen and shifts in how I listen a lot more. This is, this is good. And uh, the, the cool thing about this, right, is when I was asking these questions, I was attempting to gather data. I was just trying to get data that I could analyze for a dissertation. But the attempt to c- collect data ended up turning into an intervention which is super interesting. This is one of the things that happened in my dissertation that I'm kind of like proud of, uh, still proud of to this day. I didn't publish my dissertation because, you know, there there's parts of it that I, I think need more work, you know, before they, they see the light of publication. But this thing that I'm telling you about now on this podcast, this is something that I think is really interesting. I think it's really, really ultra groovy that that happened. And the other thing that makes it, I think, noteworthy is that, the The more that people started to pay attention to how they listened, the more, the better they think they got at saying things. I want to say that again because I think it's super important. The better people got at being attuned to, aware of, attentive to, their process of listening to somebody else speak, the better they got at actually then saying things that were what we might call therapeutic, useful things for their patients. There was a perceived and and verbally described correlation between thinking about how we listen and how good we were at talking. At least that's what this these research participants showed me. And It wasn't a whole lot of people. It was only 12, so it's not like I'm talking about a huge sample size here, but this is something that, that came up. And I guess I just wanted to talk about that because here I am doing a podcast on listening. So it seems like an appropriate thing to talk about. And I, I want you to hear that, I guess. I. It seems like something that's important for me to say. Maybe it's important for you to hear. I guess I don't know. But I, I want to say it. I think it is interesting. I think it's important. I hope, hope, hope it's useful for you. I think that's it. I, 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 I'm going to stop talking about my dissertation now. And we're going to transition to the last part of this episode of The Gorman Limit. Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk about, I mentioned at the beginning part of the podcast, it's the concept of full speech versus empty speech. So I'm moving from talking about listening now to talking about talking. This is a concept that comes from the work of the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who is the biggest influence on the way that I think, the biggest influence on the way that I practice psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Uh, And and this is a concept that I I remember when I, I first heard it, I was like, that's really cool. That's a really, really cool thing. It goes like this, you know, people talk all the time and a lot of the talking that they do is what Lacan would call empty speech. What is empty speech? It's, it's saying things that are just sort of like filler. There's not anything to them. We engage in empty speech. I engage in empty speech. You probably engage in empty speech all the time. If you go to, I don't know, uh, Starbucks or Target or any place where you buy things, you know, you, you're you going to approach somebody and they're going to say, hey, how are you? And you're probably going to say something like, oh, I'm fine. How are you? And they're going to be like, I'm good. And then you're going to proceed to the next thing, right? That All of that is empty speech. Uh, talking about the weather, empty speech. Nice weather we're having. Yeah, it really is. Uh, there's nothing to that, right? It's just sort of like saying things but you're not saying anything that matters. That's empty speech. Number is like really empty speech, which is kind of the examples that I just gave. But there's also another form of empty speech, which is where people say a number of things, but it's not useful stuff. It's not important stuff. It's not interesting stuff. This comes up in therapeutic sessions a whole bunch or at least it does in my therapeutic sessions, a whole bunch. Maybe it doesn't in yours. Maybe your sessions are better than mine. But I can tell you that pretty regularly, you know, I'll have a patient come in and they'll they'll do, they'll be like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm good. We sit down and they start saying like, hmm, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about when I came in here today. I had a good week or you know i started out this way i i saw these people i did these things it was a uh, it was a good week yeah I'd say it was good my week all things considered not bad they'll do that right they and all of this doesn't matter this is all just like verbal blah there there isn't anything there there's nothing to it and there's nothing wrong with it I don't want to make it sound like I I think that people should come in and just start like dropping truth bombs right away because that's probably not going to happen. And, you know, it it would be weird if people could do that. Sometimes people need to warm up. And one of the ways that they warm up is just by saying stuff that doesn't really matter. And that's okay. It's not like you need to put an end to that. Um, But here's the thing. This is is one of the big differences between how I used to practice that I described in, in an earlier segment of this podcast and now. I think that I used to engage with this empty speech with my own form of empty speech a whole bunch in an earlier iteration of myself. People would produce empty speech and I would produce empty speech in return to the empty speech they gave me. It's like they make empty speech, I make empty speech. That's what was going on. And it was going on a lot. And that's not evil or anything, but it's not useful. It's probably not going to make anything happen that's really important right or useful it's just stuff it's just blah and one of the things that happened when I started to when I discovered this concept and really started learning a lot about psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic methods when I learned about this I started to change how I I worked this happened after that incident that I described where I sort of like I lost my voice and I couldn't talk uh, eventually, uh, that was a big eye-opener, losing my voice and just kind of like waiting to talk and seeing what happened. That opened my eyes to the the power of just like listening to silence and letting silence be and not filling the silence with empty speech. That was a really important lesson. But I didn't know about empty speech when that happened. Later on, I was reading and I read about full speech and empty speech, and I was like, oh, this is, this is groovy. It confirms this thing that I already kind of learned when I lost my voice. And I started to recognize that, you know, as I regained my voice, one of the things that I would do is I would sort of like um, fill silences or fill awkward moments or respond to empty speech with more empty speech. And this is wasteful. There's, it's, a, it's a waste of time to to do this. This is what I believe now anyways. So nowadays, when people come in and they talk to me and they produce a lot of empty speech, which certainly happens very often, I don't say anything. I just, I sit and I wait. And I'm like, okay. They're saying things, they're warming up, they're getting ready, and they're going through their process, whatever that process may be. But they're not saying anything that has what I would call real content to it. They're just saying stuff. And so I wait. I'm patient. I'm quiet. And I listen. And I wait. And, you know, sometimes there's these silences and they stretch out. And the silences are okay too. The empty speech is okay. The silences are okay. It's all okay. And then eventually what will happen if I wait long enough and I refrain from speaking is people will say something that isn't empty speech. They'll say something which is what Lacan called full speech. They'll say something important. They'll say something that is actually meaningful to them, something that's going on in their lives that they that's going to be useful for them to talk about in a session. But you, you don't just get there, right? You, you do have to get there usually through the empty speech. You have to let people do their empty speech routines let them warm up. I guess you have to be disciplined to, to to sort of wait, to hold off, to not talk, and when you do say something, say something that that matters. If you do this, I think you'll find that it will influence how your patients talk to you in the sessions that you have with them. Uh, but let's talk about what full speech like looks like when it gets manifested. Talk about it on the side of the patient. Talk about it on the side of the psychotherapist or the psychoanalyst. So a patient will come in and like I said, they'll be like, you know, I, let me tell you about my week. It went like blah, blah, blah. And you listen and you don't have anything to say. So you don't say anything. And they're like, hmm hmm, mm-hmm. and then they might say something like, you know, huh? There's this other thing that happened. I wasn't really thinking about it before now, but, uh, let me tell you about that. And then they tell you about something that happened that isn't just a mundane thing. It's not just some regular sort of interaction that comprises their week. It's a, an interaction within which something important happened. And I don't think they would talk about that unless you were just kind of like patient and quiet and didn't say anything. They have to get to that. But, the one, and, but if you keep on giving a more empty speech, then they'll just keep on producing empty speech. They have to run out of things to say, and you have to not put more empty speech in the empty speech tank. You know, you can't just add your empty speech to their empty speech, because if you do that, then they just make more empty speech. If you're quiet, if you wait, if you hold off when they make empty speech, then what happens is, uh, and this isn't foolproof or anything like that, it doesn't always happen, but it's more likely that it will happen, that they'll say something that isn't empty speech. You just got to wait, right? That's That's kind of how that works. And that's how, I guess, full speech gets manifested on the, the patient side of things, or one way you could describe how full speech gets produced on the patient side of things. On the therapist or the analyst side of things, um, it, it's more difficult, I think. Uh, so I listen to people talk a lot. I mean, you know, people come and they, they talk. I listen, I listen, I listen. When I do say something, it's because I think I actually have something that I do want to say. I have something that I think is worthy of saying, and sometimes that's a question, but a lot of times what it is, is what another psychoanalyst, Jacqueline Miller, calls making note of something. You know, people will come in, and they'll they'll tell you about their lives, and occasionally they'll do something where they'll say something in a certain way, or... Whatever and and or they'll they'll use a word which is uncaring. There'll, there'll be something that they say that strikes you because it's it seems different. It seems noteworthy that they spoke in the way that they spoke. Um, I remember once, you know, um, you know, somebody was coming in and they they told me uh, a story at the beginning of the session that had to do with uh, in a way an interaction they were having with one of their parents, and then they said a whole bunch of other stuff that really wasn't all that related. And then near the end of the session, they described an interaction that they were having with their own child. And uh, I said, at that moment, something clicked in my head, right? And I went, huh, it's interesting because, you know, a little bit ago when we started, you were saying blah, blah, blah about your relationship with your parent. And then you said, blah, blah, blah about your relationship with your own child. And... When I said that, it's like I could see the patient's eyes get wide because they had said the same thing. They had forgotten about what they had said about their own relationship with their own parent, I think, by the time they were talking about their relationship with their child. Time had elapsed in between, but there was a huge similarity. The same words were being used, and I noted that. I pointed that out to the patient. And that's something which could be seen as full speech. It's making them aware of something that they said they are unaware that they said it they're unaware of the connection between these two things but in my mind there was a connection there and i i pointed it out i was like look here's a thing there's a connection here i didn't say that i didn't say i want to make a connection for you i said i just want to point something out the way that you talked about your relationship with your parent was like you you said these things and then time went by and the way you're talking about your relationship with your child you said the same things that's it i don't need to go further That's enough right there. and and So basically, they spoke a lot. I spoke very little. But the thing that I said was an important thing. It was full speech. It was something that when the patient heard it, it made something come together for them that was important, that had an impact on them, that had an impact on how they felt, and it made them aware of something, right? That's an example of full speech. There's a whole bunch of other ones that I could give but what I think is really important is that full speech is speech that has an effect. When you engage in full speech, it has an effect on the person who hears what you say. It's, it, when, when you go and you get coffee and you have the exchange with the coffee person, and how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine as well. This does not have much of an effect on you. I mean, it has a minimal effect on you, but not what I'd call a significant effect. When somebody says something to you, that's full speech, when they point something out to you, when they make note of something that is significant, it has the effect of ringing a bell. And it's a bell that can't be unrung. And when that bell is rung and it can't be unrung, people start thinking differently. They might start behaving differently. They start doing things. There is an effect. Sometimes people, when you engage in full speech, get angry at you. You make them aware of something that they kind of (laughs) wish... that they didn't know you point out something that they don't like and they get frustrated that's okay you know when that happens uh frustration is an effect but it it's then what happens after that a lot of times just because somebody gets frustrated that doesn't mean that they're going to fire you as their therapist or their psychoanalyst or whatever it just means that they're frustrated at you um but you'll you'll see the effect of, of your full speech these are really important things uh another psychoanalyst eric laurent Writes a lot about interpretations. You know, interpretations are verbal, full speech, verbal interventions where the person who's in the role of the therapist or the analyst says something, and the interpretation cuts through, like a repression, cuts through something that is hiding something else and makes the patient aware of what is being hidden. You know, and, and that's a really significant thing when, when you do it. An interpretation is a revealing, a revealing of something you and a lot of times interpretations, really good interpretations, they don't consist of a whole lot of words. They, they're, they're, they're kind of short, but they make the patient realize something that's really important. If anybody has ever said something to you, that's just been like a, you know, they say it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Right? Like, how did I not see this? Uh, that's an example, perhaps, of an interpretation and it's, its full speech. Um, here's an example that I can, can think of that comes from a movie, a movie that I like a lot, the movie Jurassic Park. You know, there's a scene in Jurassic Park where uh, the guy who's created Jurassic Park has brought all the characters in the film to the park, and he's explaining how he did what he... You know, I, there was these bugs that had sucked blood out of dinosaurs, and then the bug got put into amber, and then I found the bug in the amber and I took the blood and I sequenced the DNA and added some frog stuff and now I have dinosaurs right he's telling the people this and people are having a variety of reactions but the character Ian Malcolm played by Jeff Goldblum says your scientists were so busy thinking about whether or not they could they didn't stop to consider whether or not they should you know and, and that was a really true statement there and and I would say that's an example of full speech it's, a, it, it's revealing something which is true, but the guy who made Jurassic Park didn't like that Ian Malcolm was saying this. He's just like, oh, no, 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 you got defensive. That's okay. Just because somebody gets defensive doesn't mean that the interpretation is like wrong or something. It doesn't mean that the full speech isn't effective. doesn't mean that the full speech isn't important and that sort of thing. Um, but anyways, I feel like I'm I'm losing the thread here as I talk about this. And I think you're probably a smart enough person to understand the difference between full speech and empty speech. Uh, so the last thing I'll say, again, is is to make the connection between listening, our ability to listen and listen well. And I think that there's a, a connection between that and our capacity to produce full speech. I think if we get good at listening, if we're able to listen in a disciplined way, we will hear the things that we need to hear in order to respond with full speech. That's the point I guess I'm trying to make. It took a long route to get there, but I think you get the point. I hope you get the point and that is going to be a wrap for this episode of the gorman limit thanks for taking the time to download this thanks for taking the time to listen to it and uh, if you want to know more about what's going on with the gorman limit you can go to thegormanlimit.com. that's the website you'll find things and stuff there and i hope you'll come back and listen to the next one until then please make glorious mistakes